Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be studying Buddhist chanting. Chanting has been used all throughout history for various reasons. And today we're going to discuss what are those reasons, why you would be interested in using chanting, and then how it can benefit you in your Buddhist practice. So let's discuss some of the ways that Buddhist chanting has been used throughout history. During the Buddha's lifetime, all of his teachings were done orally. We think that he might have spoken in Pali, which is a language that is no longer a spoken language today, and it was predominantly just a, a, an oral language, although they did start writing things down much later. Uh, we do believe that there's could have been a language prior to Pali that the Buddha was speaking in that wasn't actually Pali. We've thought for a long time that the Buddha probably spoke in Pali because the largest collection of teachings that still exist from the Buddha is in the Pali language. However, there's been some recent discoveries that show some texts in some languages that were precursors to Pali. The Pali text or Pali canon that we currently have available to us, which is the largest collection of the teachings, dates back to about 800 AD, or we also say CE, which means common error. So about 1200 years ago. So from the death of the Buddha in 483 BCE, or before common error, to 800 CE, there was a good uh, 12 or 1300 years there of the Buddhist teachings first originally existing in oral form during his lifetime, and then for two or three hundred years after his lifetime existing in oral form, and then eventually getting written down and then passed down to the point where now the source text that we have, I've heard dating around 800 CE, which takes us about 1200 years ago. Now with the tradition of Buddhist teachings, they were remembered for a very long time, definitely during the Buddha's lifetime, nothing was written down because as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, the mind clears out all of the craving, all of the desire, all the attachments and eliminates greed, hatred, delusion, or craving, anger, and ignorance, along with dissolving the ego and realizing non-self. And as a benefit of that, one of the things that happens is the mind becomes very concentrated, very focused. You get very good memory, profound memory. So during the Buddha's lifetime, people remembered a lot of his teachings. And it wasn't until after he died that they kind of assembled as much of the teachings as they could in order for them to be remembered and further taught and then eventually written down and shared up until modern times. However, just like everything, the teachings that the Buddha shared have been affected by impermanence. Impermanence is there is no steady or constant or fixed state. And this is the reason why we see various traditions of Buddhist teachings all throughout the world. We see the Theravada teachings, which is considered to be the form of the teachings closest to the time of the death of the Buddha. Then we see Mahayana teachings and we see Vajrayana teachings, which are removed from the original teachings of the Buddha. They start to change and start to morph. Well, one of the ways that they use to memorize the teachings of the Buddha from his lifetime until present day is through chanting. And chanting has been taught as a method of memorizing the teachings. 
And in the Theravada tradition, we chant in the Pali language. Pali is spelled P-A-L-I, the Pali language. In the Pali language, all Theravada traditions will pretty much chant with this language. So if you're in Sri Lanka, if you're in Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, southern Vietnam, these are kind of like the focal points of the Theravada teachings. But in reality, these teachings have spread all throughout the world. So you'll find Theravada practitioners and temples all throughout the world. The Mahayana tradition is mainly housed in China, but again, has been spread all throughout the world. And then the Vajrayana tradition is mainly from Tibet, which once again has been spread all throughout the world. Well, if you chant in Mahayana or Vajrayana tradition, they will typically do that in their local regional languages. So if you're in China, they will chant in Chinese, or if you're in Vietnam, they will chant in Vietnamese and so forth and so on. So the chanting is very regionalized, where in the Theravada tradition, because we all chant in the Pali language, it's all fairly uniform from Sri Lanka to Miramar to Laos to Cambodia to Thailand to southern Vietnam and then once again all over the world anyone who's chanting in the Pali language within the Theravada tradition. There are some little bit of regional dialects but oftentimes monks of these various countries will all get together and practitioners, household practitioners as well, will get together and chant in the Pali language. And even though they're from very different regions or they're from different temples, they can all pretty much chant together in the same language. So one of the things that's really nice about Pali chanting is it's a way to memorize the teachings and then build up community amongst other practitioners from various regions of the world and various temples that are practicing. You can actually walk into any temple and actually sit down and chant with the household practitioners and the ordained practitioners. This is a really nice thing to be able to do with the various communities. How I use chanting is I use chanting in order to improve my awareness of mind. One of the important things for this practice is practicing mindfulness, which is awareness of mind. And in order to develop that, you need to develop practices and cultivate mindfulness. One of the ways that I've done that is through chanting, through meditation, and so forth. So chanting is a great way to take a certain text or certain script of chanting, observe that, study that, practice it over and over and over again. And through that, you're developing awareness of mind. You're also developing the memory and actually cultivating good memory. And because of you doing that, you actually get to hear this really nice sound that can kind of ease the mind into meditation. So I use chanting in order to ease the mind into meditation, building awareness of the mind and awareness of the breath. One of the things that I noticed early in practice, very early in practice, is it's very challenging to really see much benefit in terms of how all your studying, all your learning, all your meditation is coming together into a more peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy because it's a pretty long path in order to attain this mental state of Nibbana. So one of the things that I observed is when I was chanting early in practice, when I first got started for the first several years, chanting was one of the ways that I noticed that it helped me to have an audible, noticeable indication that my practice was improving. I could notice from session to session or month to month that the chanting that I was doing was gradually getting better and better and better with a better tone, uh, with a better organization of the syllables. I was becoming more aware of the mind, more aware of the breath, and the sound that was coming back was much better and I was able to memorize the actual words much better as time went on. So this was a very clear indication to me that my practice was evolving. Even though my mind was still very cluttered, even though I still experienced hatred or ill will or challenges in other parts 
of my practice, the chanting was something that I could be doing on a regular basis on my own to be able to observe that the work that I was doing was contributing in, to something that was continuing to improve. By staying dedicated to learning and practicing chanting, now I have the ability to do this chanting on my own or with class or wherever I'm, I'm teaching meditation. And this chanting is now a tool that I can use in order to help ease my mind into meditation and help students ease their mind into meditation as well. So chanting is essentially a tool. It's just like a hammer. When you see a hammer the first time, you can't pick it up and go build a house with it. You need to use it many times and hit many different nails until you become proficient at actually using this tool of a hammer. So chanting is the same way. If you would like to develop a chanting practice, you need to stay committed and dedicated to it. And through doing so, you will notice that it will become a more and more useful tool for you that will actually aid you in easing the mind into meditation, easing it out of meditation, developing mindfulness or awareness of mind, developing memorization, and helping you to observe that your practice is continuing to improve day by day through this audible sound that you're making through chanting. Now let's talk about chanting and mantras. Chanting in the Buddhist tradition, in the Theravada tradition, is what I've been describing to you so far. But in other traditions, you will hear them use the word mantra. For me, these two words aren't actually the same, although on the outside looking in, they could be maybe considered the same. Chanting is what I've described so far. From what I understand, and I don't understand much because I've never explored the Mahayana or Vajrayana traditions, but for me, what I've observed, what mantras are considered, is they are kind of special words that are used in a chanting fashion, and it's thought that these words and the organization of these words have some type of special ability or special spiritual powers. This isn't something that Gautama Buddha taught, but it's something that you will see in various Buddhist communities around the world. There is nothing that we can say or do in terms of chanting that through the hearing of that word, it's going to instantly create enlightenment. It doesn't work that way. Where chanting and or mantras benefit us is in what I described so far. It helps to build mindfulness, awareness of mind. It helps to build the memory and it helps to develop a practice where you're able to slowly progress and move the mind in a direction of Nibbana. But chanting and meditating alone is not going to create Nibbana. Chanting and meditation can be a foundation to your practice, but by themselves are not going to create Nibbana. You need to have the teachings that Gautama Buddha shared in order to go along with the chanting and meditation to build out your entire life practice. This includes the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the teachings on the Three Poisons, understanding karma, understanding merit, understanding dissolving the ego, the, the self, all of these various teachings that the Buddha shared with us, this is the life practice. But it's the chanting and meditation, which is a daily practice that we're doing on a daily basis to train the mind for mindfulness, to become aware of the breath, to bring the mind into the present moment and train it to reside only in the present moment. So this is why we use chanting and this is how it can benefit your practice. So continuing forward, let's talk about how we actually do the chanting. What I would suggest is that you use this guide. I use a laminated version of this in my classes. And if anyone has ever been to any of my classes, you may have gotten one of these or you may have one that you've taken a picture of and put it on your phone. Or if you've downloaded this book, you can look to chapter 11. And when you look at chapter 11, you're going to see a subsection called preparing for meditation. In this section, 
chapter 11, preparing for meditation, you are going to see where I start to describe how I prepare for meditation. And what I describe in here is that the goal of preparing for meditation isn't for everybody to do exactly the way I do it. That would be permanence. What I'm sharing with you in these classes is what I do so that you can practice that and see if you receive benefit with it. And if it works for you and it benefits you, then you use it. And if it doesn't, then you, then you don't. Essentially what the Buddha described in his teachings is he described that we should set up mindfulness in front of us. Setting up mindfulness in front of us prior to meditation. That's what he said. Set up mindfulness in front of you. So mindfulness is awareness of mind. Setting up mindfulness in front of you is starting to gradually become aware of the mind prior to meditation. Essentially, what he's recommending, in my view, is don't just walk in and plop down and expect to meditate and get all kinds of benefit. Essentially, to move the mind into meditation, you have to set up mindfulness in front of you. You have to become slowly, gradually aware of the mind. So what this might involve, if you're meditating at home or at a temple or some park or something, you might slowly walk into the space. You might have taken off your shoes prior. You might do a little bit of stretching. You might go to the bathroom, empty out the organs. Who knows? Just kind of essentially preparing the body because you want the body to be comfortable for meditation. And if the body is experiencing pain from either the bladder or the colon, or if the, you have other things going on, the body is going to experience pain and therefore it's not going to be as comfortable to bring the body and the mind into meditation. So have something that you kind of do, whether it's go to the bathroom, do a little bit of a stretch or kind of move the neck from side to side, essentially start preparing the body for meditation. Then take your meditation position, whether that's seated, lying, standing or walking meditation, take your position for meditation. For me, I'm always putting my lower body in a particular comfortable position, my upper body, my hands and arms. I've discussed this in previous teachings that you can refer back to in our podcast, in our YouTube channel, and on our live streams, as well as in the book. You'll have details on how I actually set up the body for meditation. Once I've set up the body, then I move into chanting. And chanting, once again, is a way to ease the mind into meditation and start to become aware of the mind and aware of the breath. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you some chants that you can use in order to start developing your practice. These chants are the same chants that are in the book, chapter 11, subsection preparing for meditation. The very first chant that I'll share with you is what we call the chant for the triple gem or the triple jewel. The triple gem or the triple jewel is the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. These are essentially referring to the actual Buddha who existed 2,500 years ago, to the Dhamma or his teachings. Those are his teachings that he shared and the Sangha, which is the community of practitioners. Generally, it means the community of practitioners. This breaks down into the Bhikkhu Sangha, the Bhikkhuni Sangha, and what we call the Aryan Sangha, which is the male ordained monks, the female ordained Bhikkhunis, and the Aryan Sangha are anyone who's attained any of the four stages of enlightenment. So this would include lay people as well. So in the triple gem, what you're essentially doing is you're recognizing your confidence that you have in the Buddha, that he was perfectly enlightened, and you are showing respect for his teachings that he shared, and you're showing gratitude and respect to the Sangha, which are anyone who's attained any of the four stages of enlightenment because those are the guides, those are the teachers, those are the people that Gautama Buddha essentially left behind through all these years in order to guide everyone else to enlightenment. 
So when we're chanting to the triple gem or we're chanting the triple jewel, we're essentially acknowledging our confidence and our respect for the Buddha, his teachings, and the community of practitioners who are guiding others in order to attain enlightenment, the community. The Pali words are on the screen, and for the podcast, you can refer to the book, chapter 11, the section preparing for meditation. The Pali words here, I will say very slowly so that you can start to follow along and start to understand these words. They start with Arahang Samma Samhoto Amhakawa Potang Bhakavandhang Abhivatemi And there you see a period. And typically what will happen in a community of practitioners, at this point, everybody will prostrate down to the ground or bow to the ground, placing their hands on the floor and their head down onto the floor. And they're usually gesturing towards a statue in the front of the room. A lot of places will have statues, but not every place does, of course, because some places understand that statues aren't to be worshipped and aren't part of the Buddhist teachings. But you will oftentimes see people prostrate down to the ground as a way of showing respect and gratitude to the Buddha, because that first phrase is to show respect to the Buddha. What you'll notice that I do is I will typically place my hands up higher. So I will be chanting with my hands in my chest at my sternum. And then when I get to the end of that statement, I will move my hands up to my forehead to show respect to the Buddha. As you can see here with this first phrase, the English translation is the perfectly enlightened one is worthy and rightfully self-awakened. I bow down before the awakened, perfectly enlightened one. What a perfectly enlightened one is, is a Buddha. Because as I've mentioned in previous teachings, is a Buddha is self-awakened, which means they understand the path very, very clearly. Because they didn't have lots of teachers teaching them and guiding them along the path, they individually on their own discovered the teachings to enlightenment. So as they acquired certain realizations on their own, they practiced those teachings. And if it worked, they kept it. And if it doesn't, then they discard it. So when a Buddha awakens, because they didn't have the help of anyone else, they're what we considered perfectly enlightened, meaning they don't have with them any baggage from any teachers who may have picked up some extra stuff along the way that doesn't necessarily lead to enlightenment that they're kind of carrying. So a Buddha would know the path very, very well and see it very clearly. So we refer to them as perfectly enlightened, or sometimes you'll hear people refer to a Buddha as fully, perfectly enlightened. In other words, there's absolutely no defilements in the mind. There's no greed, hatred, and delusion, or craving, anger, and ignorance. There's no ego. There's no self. There's nothing left there other than an enlightened mind that they discovered on their own. And that's why the second part of this English translation says, rightly self-awakened, right? Someone who self-awakens, you know, you'll see how challenging it is to awaken with the guidance of teachers and guides, but to do it on your own is extremely challenging. And there's a lot of things that a being has to go through in order to self-awaken. Very big, big, big challenge. So this is one of the reasons why Gautama Buddha is so highly respected is that because you'll see how challenging it is to awaken with teachers and guidance, he did this on his own and shared those teachings. So this is why he's referred to as the perfectly enlightened one is worthy and rightly self-awakened. I bow down before the awakened, perfectly enlightened one. That's the first phrase. Then the second phrase, Sawakato Pakawata Tamo 
tamang namasami. This phrase is essentially showing gratitude and respect for his teachings. And here you can see the English translation, the Dhamma is well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one. I pay respect to the Dhamma. This is his teachings. These are the teachings that you're learning in terms of the universal truths, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, Greed, Hatred, and Delusion, the teachings on Gamma, and so forth and so on. This second phrase is saying, I pay respect to those teachings. And then the third phrase, Supatipano Pakawato Sawaka Sanko Sanghang Namami. This is for the Sangha, the group of people who have attained one of the four stages of enlightenment. In the English translation here is the Sangha of the perfectly enlightened ones, disciples has practiced well. I pray, pay respect to the Sangha. Essentially, they're practicing the teachings very well. So these three phrases are used as a way to kind of acknowledge your confidence, your respect, and your gratitude for the Buddha, his teachings, and the Sangha, the people who are practicing his teachings and sharing those. Here you can see that we're using English characters of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, so forth, in order to distinguish the actual chanting. You will see that in various communities, in the Thai community, they will use Thai characters in order to represent the Pali words. And in other regions, they will use their local language to represent the Pali sounds, but the sound coming from the practitioner's mouth is all going to be very similar in the Pali language. The English language is a little bit tricky to represent the Pali chant. This chant is And we're going to do that three times. The English translation here is respect to the perfectly enlightened one, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one. Essentially, this one is just for Gautama Buddha only. So this one is repeated three times over and over. And if you were going to maybe break this down and maybe work on just one chant at a time in order to develop it, you might pick this chant as kind of the first one that you work on. But if you want to work on all three at one time, you certainly could. But a lot of times people will just pick one chant, work on that, develop it really well, and then those same sounds and syllables show up in the other chants, so you'll find that you'll learn the other ones a lot more seamlessly. So this particular chant is one that we will typically teach Thai children as their very first chant, and they'll do this one three times over and over again, maybe in the morning or at night before they go to bed as part of their meditation practice. So this particular chant to respect Gautama Buddha Namo tasa pakawato arahato sama samputasa. This is a chant that you could definitely use in order to start to chant and develop your practice and have a nice way to develop mindfulness, ease the mind into meditation, and start to become aware of the breath. The next chant that I would like to share with you is another chant that we also do as part of this tradition. This one, I refer to it as the Itipiso. And this is how I usually hear Thai people referring to it as well. There isn't kind of a way to refer to these chants other than by kind of like the first few syllables. So the very first chant, people will refer to that as maybe like the Arahang Sama Samputasa. In the second chant, they would refer to as the Natmotasa. In this chant, we refer to it as the Itipiso. And the ETP So is a little bit more involved chant, which has some of the same themes in terms of the meaning of the chant, but the syllables 
are a little bit more challenging than the other two chants. So you may work on those other two chants first as a way to start to develop your meditation practice. This particular chant, the way it sounds is like this. Iti piso ambhakawa arahang samasamhoto vi chacharanang sambhuno sakato roka vitu anutero purisa Tama sati sata tawa manu sanang puto pakawati. This chant, the English translation is He is the perfectly enlightened one, a worthy one, a rightly self awakened one. Here you see a theme, right? You see a theme in these chants always talking about the perfectly enlightened one, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one. This is a big distinction between the Theravada tradition and other traditions of Buddhism. And other traditions, pretty much all of them, they usually teach that if you become enlightened, you are considered a Buddha. But in this tradition of the teachings that's closest to the time of the death of the Buddha, we don't refer to other enlightened beings as a Buddha. We only refer to someone as a Buddha if they were self-awakened and they lead other people to enlightenment. And there's other criteria as well, which I put into chapter three, which denotes what an actual Buddha is. So if you are enlightened, you would be considered an enlightened being or someone might refer to you as an arahant, but they wouldn't refer to you as a Buddha or Buddhahood or Buddha nature in this tradition because we only look at Gautama Buddha as the actual Buddha. So in order to become a Buddha, they would have to meet these criteria of being perfectly enlightened and self-awakened, leading lots and lots of other people to enlightenment throughout their life. In fact, during Gautama Buddha's lifetime in his teachings, he rarely, if ever, even referred to himself as a Buddha. This is why we don't refer to enlightened people as a Buddha, because he didn't even refer to himself as a Buddha. From my recollection in the Pali text that I read, there's maybe one or two times where he referred to himself as a Buddha, but this could be actually just an incorrect translation. Most often what he referred to himself as is the Tathagata, the Tathagata is, has many different meanings to that word of what we think that word means. And you can explore that in the book that I wrote under the frequently asked questions section where I break down some various meanings of what a Tathagata is. So Gautama Buddha didn't refer to other people as a Buddha and he very rarely, if ever, even referred to himself as a Buddha. So we don't refer to other people as a Buddha in this tradition. We respect Gautama Buddha as the Buddha. So here, this first phrase of this third chant is just very similar to the previous chants where it says, he is the perfectly enlightened one, a worthy one, a rightly self-awakened one. Continuing, consumerate in knowledge. Consumerate means like uh, perfect knowledge or exemplary knowledge, uh, profound knowledge. So he's consumerate in knowledge, essentially very wise in knowledge and in conduct. Conduct is like moral conduct, right? In terms of right speech, right action, right livelihood, in terms of how he conducted his daily life once he became enlightened. So essentially what this phrase is saying is that he's perfect in wisdom or knowledge and perfect in conduct. One who has gone the good way, knower of the worlds. So he's walking towards the light. He has gone the good way, knower of the worlds. What we're referring to here when we say knower of the worlds, this is the five realms. The realm of hell, afflicted spirit, the animal realm, the human realm, and the heavenly realm. 
So he is the knower of the worlds. Essentially, knower of the realms is essentially what this is referring to. Then the last phrase is unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught. What this means is he's essentially training people how to become more human. That's essentially what the Dhamma teachings are doing. And this is why once you get closer and closer to the first, second stage of enlightenment, should you attain those stages of enlightenment, you're going to be reborn back into the human realm because the path to enlightenment, one is training the mind to become more and more human. And Gautama Buddha, we consider him to be the unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught. In other words, those who choose to be taught. Gautama Buddha didn't go out and force people or coerce people or guilt them or fear them into learning his teachings. He only chose to teach people who chose to learn with him. He didn't go out and kind of manipulate people out of fear or guilt or shame in order to practice his teachings. So it was only people who chose to be taught and once they chose to be taught, we consider him to be the unexcelled trainer. In other words, an exemplary uh, trainer of those who choose to be taught. Teacher of humans and divine beings. So, of course, he taught many, many humans and his teachings continue to be shared with humans throughout the world. And we say divine beings as well because they're stories of heavenly beings who are also kind of able to attain enlightenment through their practice as well. Heavenly beings or divine beings, they tend to be, lack motivation because the heavenly realm is so pleasant. They don't always learn and practice the teachings, but these teachings are available in the heavenly realm for them to learn and practice as well. And then we say the last part of this phrase is awakened and perfectly enlightened. So this particular phrase at the end is unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught, teacher of human and divine beings, awakened and perfectly enlightened. This is what this particular chant is referring to. So a much more encompassing chant, much more meaning here, and therefore the syllables used in order to chant this are a little bit more complex in the way that we chant this. So what I'd like to do is pause and see if there's anybody that has questions in our virtual classroom. We do have a question from Geesing, and I know you covered this earlier, but it might be worth recapping. Uh, Geesing asks, what was the, the Buddha's language? So perhaps we can recap. Honestly, we really don't know because he taught 2,500 years ago the teachings that we have available to us are in the Pali text, which essentially date back to about 1200 years ago, although we know it existed prior to that. It's just the largest collection of teachings that we have date back to 1200 years ago. So we've always assumed for many, many years that the Buddha taught in Pali. Many, many people assume this. But in the last few years, archaeologists have uncovered teachings that were written down in a language prior to Pali, a language that predates Pali. It's kind of a precursor to Pali. So the Buddha could have spoke in that language or it could have even been a language before that. But in reality, it doesn't really matter what language he spoke in because today the teachings are available in English and we can discover the true Dhamma through our practice. This is the Buddha knew that his teachings are impermanent, just like everything else. And he told people that upon attaining enlightenment, that they should take effort to move his teachings into their local languages and their local dialects. And he gave people permission to do that. He didn't expect that the teachings would remain in the language that he spoke them in, because that's permanence. He was well aware that language is impermanent, just like everything else. So in his teachings, he shares for people to have the freedom to put them into their local language. So for me, everything I teach is in English. I will use an occasional Pali word if somebody asks me and kind of twists my arm a little bit, 
but I really try not to use poly because it's in the past. It doesn't need to be learned. And if everybody is trying to relearn poly just to try to understand the Buddhist teachings, that's a big mountain to climb just to understand his teachings. And then from that point, you have to start practicing. So by learning the teachings in English, a language that you already know, you can immediately start practicing. There's been people prior to us that have done all the work to bring the teachings out of the Pali language into the English language. And we've had enough people learn and practice the teachings that we now have the teachings in English in a way that can be immediately understood and immediately practiced so that you can get the benefit of Nibbana. That's the real goal. So anybody who's sharing Pali, if you're interested in learning Pali, you can do that, but it's not required in order for you to attain enlightenment. And I would suggest that you learn in whatever language you have the most ability to understand. So if you're Thai and you can learn, and that's your native language and your English skills haven't quite developed yet, maybe you want to learn with a person who's attained Nibbana, who speaks Thai, and you can learn in the Thai language. Whereas if you speak English or another language, find someone who's attained Nibbana that can communicate the teachings in your language that you more, most deeply understand because in this life, you only have so much time. And rather than try to learn all this Pali language and then start understanding the teachings and then start practicing the teachings and then get help and guidance, it, takes an, it would take an enormous amount of time. The community of practitioners have really started to grow who speak English. And the more and more, in my view, that people learn the teachings of the Buddha in English, it just widens your community of people that you can talk to and that you can discuss these teachings with and that you can get benefit to seek guidance and results in your practice because the ultimate goal is results. And the Pali language isn't going to necessarily do that for you because there's lots of different variations in the Pali language of trying to understand what that means. So my recommendation is it doesn't really matter what language the Buddha spoke in. We have his teachings today in this moment, and we have them in a lot of localized languages. So study the language in the language that you have the most ability to understand with and study with a teacher who has attained Nibbana so that you can get real deep insight and wisdom from that person in the language that you understand the most. Thanks, David. We have no more questions. Okay. I'm going to go back to the original chant that we started with, the very first one, the triple gem or the triple jewel. And what I'd like to do, just have everyone chant along in the virtual classroom and wherever you're hearing this, either on the podcast or on the live stream, just chant along and I'll do this a little bit slow so that you can start to build up your familiarity with the sound and with pronouncing these. So we'll just do this slowly, bit by bit. So if you wanna just kind of sit and just bring your hands together kind of in a position with palms facing each other right at your sternum, and just focus on the printed words and focus on the sound that I'm making and try to chant along with me. It's not going to be perfect. This is your first time doing this or perhaps your third or your sixth time doing this. So it's not going to be perfect. We're not looking for perfection here. We're looking to train your practice, evolve your practice and each day get better and better so that then when we do our subsequent training on Wednesday each week, we can all chant this together. And when you go visit various temples and so forth and you're in various communities, you can chant this with those people as well. So bring your hands together with your palms facing each other at the sternum of your chest and now chant the language that you see either on your screen or in chapter 11 of the book. Arahang Samma Samhoto Pakawa 
And then here you probably want to move your hands up to your forehead as a way of showing respect to the Buddha. Sawakato Pakawata Tammo Tamang Namasami. Once again, move your hands up to your forehead, touching your fingers at your hairline as a way of showing respect to the teachings. And then Sopatipano Pakawato. Sāvaka Sankho Sankhang Namami And then touch your finger at your hairline one more time with a little bow of the head. That's that chant. Now let's do it without the little bit of instruction. We'll just go through it two or three times so that you can hear it repeatedly over and over and over again and start to develop your ear for this Pali language and this Pali chanting. And also listen for the high rising sounds and the slow sinking sounds because those aren't really easy to represent with the English characters. As you're chanting this, one thing you might notice is you'll tend to take a breath at certain times in the chant. So let me make you aware as we go through this second time of where I'm taking the breath because that's where you start becoming aware of the breath that leads into meditation and starts setting up mindfulness in front of you. Just learning the chants, memorizing the chants, and repeating the chants is developing mindfulness or awareness of mind. But one of the other benefits is you need to start developing awareness of the breath so that that can lead you into meditation. So here I will go back through the chant and then I will make a notation with my gesture with my hand and with my voice to show you where I'm actually taking the breath. Uh, so there's a big breath at the beginning. <laughs> big breath. Arahang Samma Samputo Pakawa. Big breath. Potang Pakawandang Apiwa Temi. And as I'm bowing, I'm taking a nice deep breath. Sawakato Bhagavata Tammo. Nice big breath. Tamang Namasami. As you're bowing, deep breath. Supatipano Bhagavato. Sāvaka-sāṅkho Deep breath. Sāṅkhāṅ namāmi And then the last bow. And you're taking your deep breath here, getting ready for the next chant. So essentially at the end of each phrase, you're taking a nice deep breath. Okay? That's how this particular chant works. So let's go through it another time without any instruction whatsoever so that you can move through it and take breaths at the appropriate time. Okay? Here we go. Nice deep breath. 
Preparation for the next chant. Okay, now we'll move on to working with the next chant, the Natmotasa. Here it's just three times the same phrase, and we're taking a breath at the end of the phrase in preparation for the next phrase. So we would have just taken a nice deep breath. Napmodhasa bhagavato arahato samma samputasa. Actually, one of the things I notice is I actually do take a breath in the middle of this phrase. So let me share that with you. It's Napmodhasa bhagavato breath. Arahato Samma Samputasa Napmodhasa Bhagavato Breath Arahato Samma Samputasa Napmodhasa Bhagavato Breath so this is the chant that you might want to work with just by itself in isolation. And do that for several days until you feel like you've got it down and you can do it unassisted without a paper, without your eyes. Because now you're looking at the paper or the screen or whatever you're using as a reference and you're having to follow along with your eyes. But what you'll notice is as you learn the breathing and you memorize these, you can actually close your eyes and now you get a lot of benefit because now you can close your eyes and recall the chant and just focus on your awareness of mind and focus on the awareness of the breath. But in order to get there, you need to practice this several times throughout your day, throughout the week, and then slowly, gradually eliminate the visual which is the book or whatever you're using as a visual, eliminate that and work on memorizing this so you can do it without any visual. Okay? So for now, if you need the visual, use the visual, but over time, slowly phase that out. Napmodhasabhakavato. <laughs> Arahato Samma Samputasa Breath Napmodhasa Pakawato Breath Arahato Samma Samputasa Breath Napmodhasa Pakawato Breath Arahato Samma Okay, this is a really good one to start with. Really good to learn this chant first. This is actually the one that I learned first. I didn't do the other ones. I only focused on this one for quite a long time. And then the more and more I memorized it, then I phased the visual out for this one, and then I started focusing on the other ones. Okay, so this is a really good one to start with. Now let's move to the ETP so because this one a little bit more involved, a little bit more challenging. The ETP so it sounds like this. I'll let you know where I'm doing the breaths. Again, nice deep breath at the end of the last chant that leads into this one. So you're have already taken a nice deep breath. 
Breath. Arahang Samasamhoto. Breath. We cha charanang samhono. Breath. Savakatorokavitu. Breath. Anu tero purisa. Breath. Tama sati sata tawa manu sanang. Breath. Puto pakawati. So that last phrase, there's actually two breaths, which we don't do in any of the other phrases. So the first phrase. Iti piso bhakava breath arahang samasamhoto we cha charanang samhuno breath savakato roka vitu Anu tero purisa breath dhamma sati sata tawa manu sanang breath puto pakavati. Okay, these are these places where I'm doing breaths are natural pauses in the chant. So when you're chanting with other people, you will notice that everyone tends to take a natural pause at this spot. So that's an ideal place to take a breath, right? If you find that taking a breath somewhere else works better for you, by all means, do it. This isn't about everyone has to do it exactly the way I do it, but if this guidance and this coaching helps you, go ahead and use it. So. These places where I'm taking a breath can be helpful for you because that's where everybody's doing a natural pause anyway. Okay? All right, so let's chant these all together, the Arahang, the Natmotasa, and the Itipiso, all together at one time, all the way through, without pausing and without me instructing where to take a breath. You just kind of soak into it and just kind of naturally go through and develop your practice through repeating this with a teacher a few times. So go ahead and get ready with your hands. And if you need the visuals, go ahead and look at the visuals. And here we go. Arahang Samma Samhoto Bhakava Potang Bhakavanang Apivatemi Savakato Bhakavata Tammo Dhamang namasami Supadhepano bhakavato Savaka sangho Sanghang namami Napmodhasa bhakavato arahato asamma samputasa Napmodhasa bhakavato arahato asamma samputasa Napmodhasa bhakavato Arahato Samma Samputasa 
पीसो भगवा आरहंग समुनो सखातो रोकावितो अनुतेरो and there at the end, I usually bring my hands up to the forehead again for one last respect and bow of the head. Kind of draw out that last syllable. Pakavati. Okay. So this is how I do Pali chanting. There's lots of other chants. So if this is something that you develop and that you enjoy it and it's beneficial for your practice and you'd like to learn more, there's places that you can go that really specialize in chanting and you can learn more and more and more and more of these chants. If you're here in Thailand or most likely other places of the world that have Theravada temples, you can go in for morning chanting and evening chanting because the monastery is typically on a schedule where every morning and every night they do a full run of about 30 minutes to an hour of chanting and meditation. So the monks in the Beaconese, they're on their own schedule of their own practice because it's all about their practice and their temple is on a discipline of morning and evening chanting and meditation as well as other things that are scheduled at, at the temple. So if you would like to join any of these temples around the world, you can just walk in in the morning or walk in in the evening or go in the middle of the day and ask them when do they do their morning and evening chanting because every temple is different. And as you discover when they actually do their chanting, you'll be able to actually join and spend time with those practitioners doing chanting and meditation. So you can actually join one of these communities in order to do that. So I hope this session has been really beneficial for you. I hope that it has helped you learn how to do chanting, the reason why chanting is used, how to actually do it, and how it will actually benefit you in practice. This live stream in this virtual classroom, this podcast, we do every Wednesday at 9 o'clock Thai time and every Sunday 9 o'clock p.m. Thai time. So wherever you are in the world, if you check what time it is in your part of the world based on Thai time being 9 o'clock p.m. on Wednesday and 9 o'clock p.m. on Sunday, you can come into the live classroom or into the live stream and receive this content live and be able to ask questions and learn along with us. If for some reason you can't come into the live sessions, these sessions are captured in Facebook in live streaming. They're captured in YouTube as well as live streaming. And we also publish them on the podcast for you to participate and learn afterwards with the podcast. So any of those methods, either live through the live classroom, live streaming, Facebook after the session, YouTube after the session, or podcasting after the session, you'll be able to receive this content because we have about another five or six months of learning where every single week, Wednesday and Sunday, I will be teaching Wednesday at nine and Sunday at nine. So I will just go ahead and end this session and wish you guys all a very wonderful day, a wonderful evening, wherever you might be, and invite you to continue to develop your Buddhist chanting practice along with your meditation practice. And notice how it will help you to ease the mind into meditation and out of meditation to benefit you to get better results during your meditation. Keep in mind that these words themselves have no special powers. 
There's no magical, mystical, superstitious kind of thing or no spell. There's no prayer. There's no seance that we're doing with these words. It's essentially the practice of cultivating mindfulness, awareness of the mind, cultivating awareness of the breath that's helping us in meditation to get better results from the meditation. That's what this practice of chanting is all about for me and the way that I practice it. So again, have a wonderful rest of your day wherever you might be. Enjoy your chanting, enjoy your meditation, and continue on this path to enlightenment. It's the very best thing that you could ever do for yourself, for those close to you, and for all of humanity. Thank you so much for choosing to learn and practice the teachings of Gautama Buddha. Have a really wonderful day. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.